chapter 4 and chapter 15. Chapter 15, verse 1 to uh, verse 41. Um, so the first part is entitled, Jesus Faces Pilate. As soon as it was morning, having held a meeting with the elders, scribes, and the whole Sanhedrin, the chief priests tied Jesus up, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. So Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? He answered him, You say so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. Pilate questioned him again. Aren't you going to answer? Look how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still did not answer, and so Pilate was amazed. At the festival, Pilate used to release for the people a prisoner whom they requested. There was one named Barabbas, who was in prison with rebels who had committed murder during the rebellion. The crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do, them, do for them, as was his custom. Pilate answered them, Do you want me to release the king of the Jews for you? For he knew it was because of envy that the chief priest had handed him over. But the chief priest stirred up the crowds so that they would release the rabbis to him instead. Pilate asked them again, Then what do you want me to do with the one you call the king of the Jews? Again they shouted, Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Why? What has he done wrong? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him! Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them, and after having flogged, having Jesus flogged, he handed them over for crucifixion. The soldiers led him away into the palace, that is, the governor's residence, and called the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, twisted together a crown of thorns, and put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! They were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. Getting down on their knees, they were paying homage, sorry, paying him homage. After they had mocked him, they stripped him of his purple robe and put his clothes on him. They led him out to crucify him. They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander of Rufus. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Then they crucified him and divided his clothes, casting lots for them to decide what each would get. Now it was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge written against him was, The King of the Jews. They crucified two criminals with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, Ha! The one who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself by coming down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests and the scribes were mocking him, among other things, among themselves and saying, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Messiah, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, so that we may see and believe. Even those who were crucified with him mocked him. When it was noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lemach, Sebachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, See, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled the sponge with sour wine, fixed it on a stick, offered him a drink, and said, Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. Jesus let out a loud cry and breathed his last. 
Then the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who was standing opposite him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph, Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women followed him and took care of him. Many other women had come up with him to Jerusalem. So far the reading. Ivanka Trump, uh, daughter of Donald Trump and senior advisor to his administration, once said in an interview that perception is more important than reality. If someone perceives something to be true, it is more important than if it is in fact true. In other words, she says, what is true doesn't matter as much as whether we think something is true or not. And we see this perhaps most clearly when we are... Um, you know, when you're courting someone for marriage, one of the, the I guess, the key ministries that Sarah and I do together is um, to do pre-marriage counseling with, with young couples who want to get married. And, and this is fun for us because it's a time in life where you get to kind of break open that young uh, and in love person's perspective of the other person and kind of force them to look at their flaws, and I quite enjoy that. Um, because, you see, when you're in love with someone, you, do, you don't actually perceive the truth of the situation. We, don't, we just don't see clearly. But the young lovebirds don't want to see the truth either. They, they just want to stare into the other person's eyes and lose themselves in the depth of their beauty. Lovers fall into the trap that Ivanka talks about here. Perception for them is more important than reality. To perceive their future spouse as perfect uh, is important for them when clearly the future spouse is not. But there are times in our lives where we kind of get woken up to the truth of our situation, when, when our perception gets shattered and the real truth comes bursting through to slap us in the face and wake us up from the delusion of our perception. Perhaps you yourself have experienced this. You know, you walk into a boardroom to meet with the boss and you realize that this is the opportunity that you have been waiting for. You've worked so hard, you've put in all these extra hours, you know that at this meeting the boss is going to be, uh, it's the meeting where the boss is going to give you finally that promotion that you've been working so hard for. And then you open the door, and Susan from HR is sitting there, and you realize that this is not the conversation you thought you were going to have. This is actually them telling you that the company is going under, and this is the termination conversation they're having for you. And all that remains is not to collect your promotion, but your severance payment. Your perception was promotion, but your reality was retrenchment. Or maybe you notice the beautiful girl at lunchtime in class and you build a relationship, a friendship with her, you become friends and before long you realize you feel something more for her and then urged by the fact that she seems to enjoy your company, uh, you come to the realization that if you were to ask her out, she would probably say yes. And so spurred on by the encouragement of your friends, you ultimately get up the courage to ask her out. And you look expectantly into her eyes, only to see confusion and amusement looking back at you. Your perception was a pretty girlfriend, 
but your reality your reality was rejection. Which is not something I speak of from experience. <laughs> or perhaps, more seriously, you go to your doctor for your annual routine checkup, and the doctor says, I just want to run a few routine tests, and after the blood work comes back, you go into the office, and he says, it's cancer. But I feel fine. But you're not fine. Your perception is perfect health. But your reality is that you need a reality check. And no matter how your perception wants to perceive the truth, the truth actually matters. Ivanka is actually wrong. It's not more important how someone perceives something than whether it is true or not. The truth actually matters. And we see this kind of play out in the crucifixion account, which we have just read. You see, in our text, there are a number of different groups of people, and we don't have time today to go into all of them, but I want to focus on some of the perceptions that people have about Jesus in our text, because they all see Jesus differently. And then depending on their perception, they act in very specific kind of determined ways. But friends, if we are to respond to Jesus properly, then it really matters. Uh, that we don't just deal with our perceptions, but we deal with him actually as he is, that we deal in truth, because truth matters. And so let's look at a couple of the different players in the scene, so to speak. The first group is the Sanhedrin. So this is the, the leaders of the, of the people, the scribes, the elders, the teachers of the law. And what they saw in Jesus was a threat to their power. You know, Jesus had been growing in popularity, he had influence, he had power, and ever since Jesus came onto the scene, they started losing their power, they started losing their influence, and Jesus uh, tackled their um, kind of abuse of power everywhere he went, and he was a threat to the established social order. Now, what we have to understand is that uh, the religious leaders of the day, they did not have the power to execute people living under Roman rule. So while it's true that the governors of Rome normally preferred for the local leadership to deal with problems, they would step in if, uh, and sort out issues if there was a problem. And there were some rules that they imposed upon the people, and one of them was that you could not just execute people. That had to go through kind of a legal system. But the main problem that the Jews had with Jesus was that he was uh, the Messiah, that he claimed to have equality with God. This was a challenge to their political and religious power, and they viewed him as a blasphemer. But blasphemy against a god the Romans didn't believe in was not something that warranted death. And so the leaders wanting Jesus gone, believing that he had outstayed his welcome, that he'd overstepped, they thought his time was come. And so what they did is actually present him as a political uh, threat to Caesar. They want, what they saw was that Jesus was a threat, and so to get rid of him, they kind of claimed that he committed treason. He is the king of the Jews, which is not something you say when Caesar claims to be the king. So they, they saw this threat, they, and what, what happened because they saw him as a threat is that they envied his power, and they tried to discredit him. They wanted him to seem worse than even this notorious prisoner, Barabbas, and so they handed him over to be unfairly judged based on false witnesses. 
They noticed their actions. Even though the issue was primarily a religious issue for the Jewish leaders, they fabricate the story where they actually end up accusing him that he's calling himself the king of the Jews. The real issue was that Jesus was a threat to their power and position and authority on religious matters, but to be able to deal with the issue, they take him to Pilate and they make it this political problem. Going around calling yourself king at a time when Caesar was seen as the ultimate ruling authority was just not a good idea. It was tre treason and it was a one-way ticket to death. And so ultimately the leaders accused Jesus of his treason against Caesar to get rid of him by making <coughs> false claims about him and therefore trying to destroy him. But that's actually a pretty common response for everyone who sees Jesus as a threat, even today. And it's true that Jesus can feel pretty, pretty threatening to us. He's threatening to us because of who he is. He's the Son of God, the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. And if this is true, if that's who Jesus is, then he demands our worship. He demands that we give up our selfishly lived lives in order to follow him. He demands of us that we stop living for our own pleasure and our own desires and that we commit to living a life for him. And so if we perceive Jesus as a threat like the leaders did, then our response is often to try and kill him, destroy him and dis discredit him even today. Because then we actually don't have to deal with it. And so friend, are you threatened by Christ? Because here's the reality check. A confrontation with Christ is coming. It's either going to happen in this life if he comes back before we die or the next. But we will have to stand and face him. And so we need to stop fighting him. Stop trying to destroy him. Stop trying to discredit him by making him seem like a, like a farce or some sort of uh, mythical figure. He is God. And he won't actually put up with our efforts to try and destroy him forever. One day, all of us, here and throughout the whole world, and throughout all of human history, will have to stand before him. Even the queen, when she died, had to come face to face with Jesus. And she was a believer. And so, for her, he said, welcome my good and faithful servant. You see, the only way to deal with the threat of Jesus is to submit to him. We can try to delay the confrontation for a while, but ultimately you and I will come face to face with the creator of the universe. So we need to submit to him now, today, while there is still time. The only way for us to respond to the threat we feel in Christ is to submit to his power over us. That's what the Sanhedrin didn't do. But that's what we should do. And so that's the first group in our story. The second group is the soldiers, and I read here from Mark uh, 15, verse 16. So the soldiers led him away into the palace, that is the governor's residence, and they called to the whole company together. They dressed him in a purple robe, they twisted a crown of thorns together, and they put it on him, and they began to salute him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were hitting him on the head with a stick and spitting on him. And getting down on their knees, they were paying homage. 
After they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple robe and put on his clothes, and they led him out to crucify him. So what the Sanhedrin saw was a man with too much power, a threat to their authority. But what the soldiers saw was a man with no power. Their perspective was that Jesus had no power. He could not possibly be the Son of God. I mean, really, consider it from their perspective. Here was just another criminal, another traitor who tried to stand up against the almighty Caesar, someone who claimed to be the king of the Jews, but who was right at this very moment in their hands. They could beat him, they could spit on him, they could hit him on the head with a stick, they could stick a crown of thorns on him, they could strip him down and dress him up as they please. What power did this man have over their life? To them, Jesus looked like someone with absolutely no power. And so what did they do? They mocked him. And Jesus, being the king of the world, the savior, the God who made everything, God incarnate himself, what does he do in response? He lets them. The reality check that these soldiers needed is that he could have zapped them with a bolt of thunder from the sky. He could have, in a moment, revealed the legion of angels he had at his command. And he could have, with a word, uncreated all of the earth, including these soldiers who were mocking him. And yet, what happened is that he let them mock him, beat him, and ultimately crucify him. Why? Because this is what he came for. He came to set the captives free. He came to bridge that gap between us and God by suffering in our place on the cross. And everyone who believes in him is set free this way. Jesus' mission could not be derailed. He chose uh, to, to go through it all. And just because some soldiers were fighting the most powerful army at the time and they decided to mock him was not going to derail Jesus from his mission. But friends, primarily, I think, particularly these days, the time that we live in, this is how our world deals with Jesus. This is how our world sees Christ. Yes, there are parts of the world where Christians are persecuted by their leaders, where Christianity in Christ is seen as a threat. But in Australia, in our context today, most people see Jesus like these soldiers saw him. As someone with no power. And here in this country, while we have some vague sense of persecution, although that is rising, most of the time, people just mock him because they think Jesus is irrelevant to their lives. But just because Jesus doesn't zap us in our mockery of him doesn't mean that he can't. Just because I don't throw this iPad at you doesn't mean that I can't. I just choose not to. But there's a very common story often told by preachers, and it goes something like this. This story happened at a particular university, and so there's this professor of philosophy there who was a deeply committed atheist. And his primary goal for the one required class was to spend the entire semester attempting to prove that God could not possibly exist. And so his students were afraid to argue because of his impeccable logic. And so for 20 years, he taught this class year after year, and no one ever had the courage to stand against him. 
Sure, some people argued at times, but no one ever really went against him because of his reputation. And at the end of every semester, on the last day, he would say to his class of 300 students, is there anyone here who still believes in Jesus? If so, you should stand up. And in 20 years, no one stood up because they knew what would happen next. He would say, because anyone who believes in God is a fool. If God existed, he could stop this piece of chalk from hitting the ground and break it. Such a simple task to prove that he is God, and yet he cannot do it. And every year he would drop the chalk on the floor on the classroom and it would shatter into a hundred pieces, and all of the students would do nothing but stop and stop. Most of the students thought that God could exist. And while it's true that a, a couple of Christians had slipped through, for the 20 years they had been too afraid to stand up. Well, a few years ago, there was a freshman who happened to enroll into this class. He was a Christian. He'd heard the stories about this professor. He was required to take this particular class to complete his major, but he was afraid. And for the three months of that semester, he prayed every morning that he would have the courage to stand up no matter what the professor said at the end of the class, no matter what his classmates thought. Nothing they said could ever shatter his faith. He hoped. So finally, the day came, and the professor said, if there anyone, is, is still anyone here who still believes in God, they are to stand up. And the professor in the class of 300 people looked up shocked at this young man as he stood up at the back of the room. And the professor shouted at him, you fool. If God existed, he would keep this piece of chalk from breaking when it hit the ground. And so he drops the chalk, but as he did, it slips out of his fingers. It rolls off his shirt cuff onto the pleats of his pants, down his leg, onto his shoe, and as it hits the ground, it rolls away, unbroken. When the story ends as the professor's jaw drops, he stares at the chalk and then bolts out the door, and the 300 students listen then to this young man who shared his faith in Christ. Now whether the story is true or not is irrelevant. It has two points. Point number one is you should pray and the prayer works. And point number two is that if you stand up for God, he will stand up for you. Um, but there's a third point that I actually think is most salient for us this morning. And it's this third point that I want to draw your attention to. And that is for 20 years the professor mocked God, and not once did the chalk not shatter. Hmm? As if God has to answer the cries of this mocking man. But for 20 years, this was taken as proof that God did not exist. For 20 years, um, he endured the mockery of this man. And for however long, God has endured the mockery of our world because he just doesn't show up when mockers challenge him. But he has shown up in the person of Christ. Jesus came with a purpose, he stayed the course, he went to the cross. And even though showing up as God would have um, uh, would have spared him from the torture, if he zapped the soldiers, if he took himself off from the cross, if he did any of those sorts of things, he could have spared himself unimaginable torment. And yet he went, he chose willingly to die, slaughtered like a lamb, to take our sins on his shoulders. Here's the truth. 
mocking Christ does not change what he did. Mocking his people doesn't change what he accomplished. The reality check is that those soldiers would one day die too. Maybe in a battle, maybe of old age. But when they died, they came face to face with the same Christ whom they had mocked. Except this time they were on their knees, not in mock homage, but as scripture says, that every day, one day every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. And so my challenge to you today is to make sure that you are on the right side of history. Even when this world will tell you that that is the wrong side of history. That's how the soldiers responded because of their perception. We've seen the Sanhedrin they see Jesus as a threat and they want to kill him. The soldiers, they see Jesus as someone with no power and they mock him. But there's this particular person in the story, the centurion, and I want to focus on him for a moment. Because how, what did he see? How did he perceive, perceive Jesus? We get a glimpse of that in verse 39. When the centurion, who was standing opposite him, that is Jesus, saw the way that he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Now this is super significant and something we can just read over if we're not careful. Because what does the text say? It says when the centurion saw the way that Jesus breathed his life, he realized that Jesus was the Son of God. Now, consider for a moment who the centurion was. The centurion was a leader in the Roman army. He was someone who had moved up the ranks. He was a skilled soldier. He was a leader in the army. A centurion is not a post that you could get because of a political appointment. You couldn't become a centurion because your uncle was a senator. The centurion was a fighter who worked his way up through the ranks through superior skill and leadership capability. He was always one of the men. He was close to his men. He was always part of the fighting whenever the legion went out to war. He was not a general who sat back in the tent and kind of commanded the troops. Now, what this meant is that a centurion, by the time you were a centurion, you had seen many, many people die, okay, in many different kinds of ways. That could be through crucifixion, it could be through a sword in the belly, it could be on the battlefield or in a dungeon. But a centurion was well acquainted with death. He was, in a sense, a master of death. In fact, most of his work involved causing death to happen, right? To be uh, where he was in his life meant that this man knew what dying looked like. But this master of death, when he sees how Jesus dies, can come to no other conclusion that truly this man was the Son of God. His perception gets shattered by the reality of who Jesus is. There was something there on that day in the way that Jesus died that showed the centurion that truly Jesus was God. Never in his life had he seen someone die like this. Never, I think what's going on, and we don't really have the time to go into why this is the case, but I think what's going on there is that the centurion sees the, that Jesus gives up his spirit, that he chose the moment that he could die. And we read in John that Jesus waits until it is finished, declares that his work is finished, 
and then gives up his spirit. There was an act of choice for Jesus to live until the very last moment when all our sins are paid for. The wrath of God is fully poured out that he then, having completed the work, chooses the moment for his spirit to depart. I think that's what's going on. But the centurion sees this and never in his life did he see someone die like this. Never in his life did he see someone wait to give up his spirit until his work was accomplished. People just die when they die. Never did he see someone suffer the wrath of God the way Jesus did. And so having had his perception, his reality shattered, what happens next? The centurion, his life changes, his allegiance changes. The first thing he does after he sees the way Jesus dies is he commits the very treason for which Jesus was crucified. You see, the centurion, when he sees that Jesus is the Son of God, ends up saying, truly this man is the Son of God, and when he does that, he says implicitly that Caesar is not the ultimate authority. There is a higher king. There is a king higher than Caesar. And the thought of that in Rome kind of got you crucified. And so the very the fact that the very first thing the centurion does after he sees Jesus dies shows us how his life changes. And the very thing for which Jesus was being crucified ends up being the very thing the centurion goes and does when he sees that Jesus is the Son of God. Do you see how remarkable that is? His entire world, the centurion's entire world, gets turned upside down. And he recognizes Jesus' lordship. And I think that his allegiance changes from Caesar to Christ. Because no longer is Caesar the ultimate authority. No longer is he the greatest power, and no longer is the greatest power seated in Rome. The power to rule the world lies with Christ. So the question here is, how will you respond to Jesus? You can respond to him as did the religious rulers, by trying to murder any kind of thought of his lordship and power in this life. You can respond to him like the soldiers do and ignore him, mock him, uh, do whatever you like because he doesn't dance to your tune thinking that he is powerless. You can do that. Or you can respond like the centurion by changing allegiances, submitting to Christ as the ultimate authority over your life and then living for him. Because here is the reality check. No matter what your perception of Jesus is, the truth is that one day, all of us will come face to face with him. One day we will stand before him and need to give an account for our life. And on that day, whether we recognize it today or not, we will realize that Jesus is the Son of God. That he deserves our worship and our honor and our homage. 
And where will you be on that day? Will you stand before him and say, um, I think I was a good person. I did more good than bad. Because then he will say to you, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for you with the devil and his angels. Or, you can join with believers of all the ages who say, See this good work of Jesus. See the life that he left. Because I believe in him. He has given that to me. And then he will say, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the beginning, the creation of the world. <coughs> Choose this day which future will be yours. That's right. <coughs> Lord, after a, a weekend where we could spend time together as a family in, in the joy of what it means to be a family uh, of children before you, we are reminded again of the stark reality which every human being faces. That one day we will come face to face with the creator of the universe. One day we will have to give an account of our lives. And on that day we will be judged according to, how, according to our works. And either it will be according to our works or according to your perfect life which you lived on our behalf. And so we pray, Lord, that you will uh, live in our hearts, that you will change our hearts, that we will not try and stand on our own good behavior, but that we will abandon these lives of um, self-righteousness and trust in Jesus alone who took the penalty of death and the wrath that our sins deserve who died in our place and for those who believe has given us his perfect life may that be our hope we pray this in Jesus mighty name Amen